0: So, good to see you. My name is Greg Paris. I'm so thrilled that you're here with us this morning to worship. We're glad you're here. Trust that uh, your time here will be a blessing. Uh, we are excitedly experiencing our Faith Promise Weekend this weekend, and it's, it's a great time of the year because it gives us an opportunity to grow our faith, to seek God about an amount of money that He might enable us to give through next year for our missions locally and globally, And so it builds our faith. It expands our vision. It postures us for God's blessing and favor. It's just got all kinds of benefit and value to it. And I hope you're as excited about it as I am because I I know it's life changing for many folks. And so, welcome to Union Chapel this morning. We'll be receiving those faith promise cards at the end of the service this morning, so you might have those handy. I've chosen as our text this morning from the book of Jonah, which is an Old Testament book, of course, one of the minor prophets. Uh, so, if you have your Bibles, you can start fishing for Jonah, if you will. And yeah, that's, that's a shame. Anyway, Jonah's in the minor prophets, and they're called minor prophets. There are 12 of these in the Old Testament. They're not minor because of their importance, but minor because of the relative length of the books. And Jonah's only four chapters. I'm going to read all 11 verses of the fourth chapter for us today. And let me just remind you about this story. Jonah was called by God as a prophet to go to a place called Nineveh. It was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were wicked people. They were really bad and merciless to to their enemies. I mean, they did gruesome things to people. And Jonah had been personally offended by them, and he hated them. And when God said to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to the Assyrians there and preach repentance or else my judgment's going to fall on them for their wickedness. And Jonah said, no, not going, not going to do that. Sorry, not going, You got the wrong guy for the job. And so Jonah gets on a boat. He heads west toward a place called Joppa, Tarshish, and instead of going north to Nineveh. And there's this storm that comes up because God's angry with Jonah for running from his calling. And the captain of the boat says, what's going on? Jonah said, well, I've rebelled against God. That's why we're all going to die here. But if you pitch me overboard, the storm will subside. So they threw him overboard. And you remember the story. A big fish swallows Jonah. And so Jonah's in the belly of this fish for three days. He's not happy about it. And then he gets regurgitated up on the beach of Nineveh and comes stumbling, stumbling up the beach and preaches, and he preaches to the Ninevites. He says, look, God sent me here. I don't want to be here. I don't like you. You don't like me. Uh, judgment's coming. You're going to get what you deserve, and and if you don't repent, you know, bad things are going to happen to you, and, and you're going to, you know, I hope you don't, and he was just not a good guy, Good, good prophet, so it's in that context now that we find This response to Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, and we pick it up there because the Ninevites actually repented. They said, oh boy, we don't need the judgment of God. So they expressed sorrow for their sins and God forgave them and extended mercy toward them. And and Jonah hated it. So that's where we pick up the story here. Jonah chapter 4, our custom is to stand to hear God's word. So I invite you to do that as you're able. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter sat in its shade, waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant, made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. This is the only time in the whole book of Jonah that Jonah's happy about anything. Verse 6, happy about the plant, leafy plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, he wanted to die, and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is. He said, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Now, the the Hebrew here actually rises to the level of an expletive. So Jonah said, yeah, yeah, you have a right to be angry. I'm angry. I'm damned angry. I'm so angry, I'd just rather die. It's like that. Let me just remind you something. You know, we kind of giggle at him. There are people in the room today who are angry. You're angry with God. And for various reasons. Some of you, though, are angry with God because you've been actually praying about your faith promise and you don't like what God's been saying to you. Now, how do I know that? I have a personal example. I've been praying about this with my wife, Beth, and I had a number that I thought was good. It was three times more generous than any number that we have ever promised to the faith promise. And I thought it was a big number, a good number. And so I told my wife, this is what I think we should promise to faith promise in 2018. And she said, I think we ought to double that. What are you talking about? (laughs) It's already several times more than we've ever given a faith promise. What do you mean double it? She said, well, that's just what I think. And what's really annoying is that she's usually right about these things. So you're looking at a guy who's a little irritated about the whole thing right now. So just so you're aware, you know, we're in this together. If you're feeling a little angry about what God's saying to you about faith promise. So watch how this ends. Verse 10. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Then the last verse, a question, a rhetorical question from the Lord. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And God said in this rhetorical question, I care about people in Nineveh, and I've forgiven them because I love them. So what's that to you? May God inspire and instruct us through His Word today. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Bertrand Russell was a great English philosopher, and he was an atheist. And he was asked on occasion when you stand before God and find out that God really exists, what are you going to say to, as a disclaimer for your rejection of Him? And Bertrand Russell responded, I will just look him in the eye and tell him he didn't give me enough evidence for his existence. Contrast that with what Paul wrote in the book of Romans when he said that people reject the notion that God exists not because there's an absence of evidence but because there is a suppression of evidence. It's not the lack of evidence, it's the suppression of it. Now note Here's what Jonah is doing. He's suppressing the evidence and moving away from God's best plan for his life. He goes in the opposite direction. God says, go north and preach. Jonah goes west to flee. And let me just remind you of something. When you decide to say no to God's best plan for your life, you know the will of God for your life, and you choose not to do it. You're not just treading water, standing still, holding steady. You're falling back. You're diminishing. You're you're eroding your relationship with God. And it's going to require time to rebuild it. And that's a lesson from Jonah. Jonah made several mistakes. Here's one of them. It's on your outline, number one. Jonah was out of touch with his mission. Out of touch with his mission. Just didn't get it. Let me ask you, do you enjoy flying? Some of you do. Most people don't enjoy flying. In fact, you see more people in commercial airlines giving the sign of the cross and sincerely praying than you do just about anywhere else. One guy, you know, had one of these ex- experiences where the landing gear wouldn't come down and the pilot comes on and says, we're going to circle and dump fuel and prepare for a hard landing. The stewardesses come on and, and they say, assume the brace position, we all know what that is, uh, put your head between your knees, grab your ankles, and breathe normally. <laughs> Have you ever wondered why they call those places terminals? <laughs> I was on a plane just this last week, and the pilot came on as we were making final approach. He said, "We're you know put your stuff away, pack it up, get tidy, lock it up. Uh, we're making final approach." And I always think to myself, "Yeah, it's going to be final one way or the other." final yeah one thing you can say about an experience like that if you're ever in an emergency in a plane is you're not asleep you're fully aware you are awake you are alert you are paying attention your senses are on high high alert and that's exactly what God was yelling at Jonah to do several times in this short book he says wake up get up and go he said you're gonna wake up and arise and cry out to the people of Nineveh. And friends, we live, we live in a day when there, when there are storms and there are challenges and there are issues. And the church of Jesus Christ needs to be fully awake and fully alert and aware of what God is doing and aware of what God is saying so that we can hear his voice and respond to his call and engage his mission. Jonah got out out of touch with that. Jonah branded the people of Nineveh as immoral. He said, look, they're immoral, they're wicked, they're they're just bad people. They're bad to the core. I don't like them, they don't like me, and I don't care about them. But what Jonah failed to do, he was out of touch with with his mission, is he failed to recognize that immorality is always preceded in people's lives by impiety. Think about that. People are immoral because they're first impious. To say it another way, immorality in the streets is always preceded by irreverence in our hearts toward God. But ultimately, the answer for human weakness and sin is something bigger than adjusting our morality or adjusting our behaviors. Now, listen to the pastor. Listen to me. We must all be changed at the level of our hearts. If real transformation is going to take place in our own lives and in culture's life, then we must be transformed at the level of our personhood, at the level of our hearts. And only God is big enough to transform a human heart. Jonah missed his mission. One of America's first overseas missionaries was a gentleman by the name of Adoniram Judson. Listen to his story, he was brilliant. Before he reached his teens, he was teaching adult Sunday school classes in the original languages of the Bible, Hebrew and Greek. He was was a genius. At the university, he had a roommate by the name of Jacob Ames. Jacob Ames. For some reason, these two young men decided to become antagonistic toward anything Christian. So Judson and Ames made quite a name for themselves as writers and antagonists opposing the faith on their university campus. And you fast forward a few years... And now Adoniram Judson is, is ch- has chosen a career in the theater and from his home in Molden, Massachusetts, he had ridden by horseback up to New York City and was returning uh, from a job interview there. And he was weary and he decided to stop uh, in an inn. When he inquired about a room, the, e- the innkeeper said there was no room. Judson asked for the front lobby to offer full price and instead the innkeeper said well there is a room but it's adjacent to a room where a man is critically ill he's dying of a disease that is very painful he's actually crying out in fits of profanity and and with a stench coming out of his body said I don't know if you could withstand it and and Judson said look nothing's going to keep me awake and so he took the room and he was adjacent to this man and he tried to get to sleep but found it impossible he listened to the man in the adjacent room in these fits of raving and profanity and crying out. He tried to cover his ears. Nothing seemed to work. Eventually, the noise subsided, and Judson went to sleep. As he was paying his bill the next morning, he asked, what happened? And the man began to get quiet in the early morning hours, and, and so he said, was he feeling better? And the innkeeper said, no, sir, that man died early this morning. And Judson said, this must be a difficult challenge for you. How do you manage such a thing? And the innkeeper said, this situation is a puzzle to me. He said, I only knew that he told me he was an honors graduate from Rhode Island College in Providence and that his name was Jacob Ames. (laughs) Judson didn't realize the blow that this would be to his own heart and his own life. He said, what did you say his name was? He said his name was Jacob Ames from Rhode Island College in Providence. And suddenly, Adoniram Judson realized, recognized that the dying man next door had been his roommate in college all of those years, the very one crying out in his death throes. Wow. Judson wrote later in his diary, and I quote, I got on my horse and tried to ride back home, but I couldn't because as the hoofs of the horse went pounding on the ground, there were only these two words, death and hell, death and hell, death and hell. Judson dismounted, he said, and he began his own serious journey and commitment to Christ, rededicating his life to Jesus Christ. He then went to India as a missionary. He was kicked out of India. He went to Burma, and he lost his wife to disease. He remarried but lost his second wife as well. He also lost three of his children to the hardships Of the field as well as other missionary colleagues. Desperately wanting to complete his work in translating the Bible into Burmese before his death, he married for the third time. His wife was also a Bible translator. And now as the Burmese authorities incarcerated him and in prison, he tells the moving story of his wife who had given birth to their child while he was still in prison. Clutching the newborn in one arm, she crawled on her hands and knees To his prison cell so that Judson, through the bars, could reach out and stroke the face of his newborn child. Burmese authorities realized he was not going to live much longer. All the while he was completing the translation of the Bible into Burmese as his wife completed the translation of the Bible into Thai. Finally, they put him on a boat, sent him back to the United States. He never made it back. He died en route. On his Home, which still exists in Molden, Massachusetts, you can see words which are etched in stone. And I quote, Reverend Adoniram Judson, born August 19, 1788, died April 1850. Molden, his birthplace, the ocean, his sepulcher, converted Burmese and the translated Burmese Bible, his monument, and his record is on high. It's a marvelous story, really, how God shaped the life of this man, took the gospel message into Burma. Today, when a Burmese person opens a Bible and reads the Bible in their own language, it's the work of Adoniram Judson. When a person in the Thai language opens a Bible and reads it in their own language, it's the work of his wife. It all began when he looked beyond the immorality, all beyond the behavior patterns and the social status of people in those particular cultures and into the spiritual root of the problem. got in touch with his mission. Here's a second thing that Jonah teaches us. Not only was he out of touch with his mission, but he was out of touch with his message. Write it down. He's out of touch with his message. Write that down. He had been so preoccupied with going to proclaim and cry out to Nineveh that he lost touch with his own message. We know that while Jonah was in the belly of this big fish that he was actually pretty prayerful. And they came over to the PA and said, Brace yourself for a hard landing. (laughs) And so he's prayerful. And we have one of the prayers of Jonah from the belly of this fish. He prayed, You are a God of mercy and a God of kindness. So Jonah knew that God was inclined to be merciful and to be kind, to be gracious and generous. But he lost touch with the message. Let me just. uh, Make an observation, if you will. It is possible. It is possible to be in touch with the words of the gospel message without being in touch with the implication of the gospel message in our own lives and the lives of others. Did you hear that? It's possible to understand the words, but not to make the application. Some of you remember the story of the prophet Elisha. This is in 2 Kings chapter 5. Elisha was a dynamic prophet of God and he was a protege of Elijah and Elijah had performed eight miracles by God's grace and Elisha prayed that he would receive a double portion of Elijah's anointing his mantle and Elisha performed 16 miracles Elisha had a had a sidekick a a right-hand man and his name was Gehazi and Gehazi was there Gehazi was there through all of these wonderful expressions of God's grace through Elisha, the prophet. These miracles and these teachings, these prophecies. Amazing. Gehazi was right there. On one occasion, a Syrian general, a very powerful man named Naaman. Remember this story? Naaman came this big entourage of people because he had heard about the miracles that came through Elisha's ministry. And Naaman was leprous with no known cure at the time. And so he came to Elisha and he said, is there anything you can do for me? And Elisha said, well, I can't do anything for you, but God can. I have no power in myself, but God does. And he said, well, can you help me? And Elisha said, yes, take yourself down to the Jordan River and dip yourself there seven times and you'll be healed of your leprosy. And Naaman took offense to that because he was a big shot and the Jordan River was this little mud hole, he thought, and my, our rivers and it's back in Syria are bigger and cleaner and no, I'm not going to do it. But his associate said, well, what's the harm? He said, what if you actually are healed of your leprosy? You know, why not try it? And he said, well, okay, but I, it's beneath me to go dip in the Jordan. And so he gets there, and he takes off his armament and his accessories, and he dips himself one, two, three, seven times. Seventh time, he comes up, and his leprosy is cleansed. He says to Elisha, because he's very happy, I have silver, I have gold, I have resources, assets here. Please take whatever you want. In thanksgiving for what you've done for me. And Elisha said, look, I told you, I didn't do anything for you. God did it. You don't have to give me anything. All you need to do is give praise to God. And Naaman left. And Naaman was on his way out of town. But Gehazi, the right-hand man of the prophet, he goes around the corner, around the side, side route, and catches Naaman before he leaves town. And he says, now, look, this isn't about me. And, you know, Elisha, my boss, you know, he's very modest and he would never ask for this, but we have a school of the prophets here, and we have young prophets in this school that Elisha leads, and, you know, there are expenses incurred. And he said, if you could do anything to help us out. It's not for me, you understand, but if you could do anything to help us out. And, and Naaman said, look, I tried to give him money before. He wouldn't take it. He said, Here is all this stuff. Take it. And so Gehazi fills his arms with all of these valuables, takes them back to his place, and hides them under his bed. And then he goes back around and presents himself as if nothing had happened in front of Elisha. And he knew Elisha was a man of God. He knew that Elisha discerned things that others couldn't discern. He knew Elisha would prophesy. And yet, and so he gets back into Elisha's presence. And Elisha looked at him and said, hey, where you been? He said, nowhere. What you been doing? Nothing. Beth and I raised two boys. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Elisha looks at him and he says, I know where you were. You followed Naaman. You told a lie. You took things. You hid them in your room. And then this shocking statement. And now the leprosy, which was Naaman's, now becomes yours. Gehazi, you see, he had come to the point when surrounded by truth, immersed in truth, tra- trading in truth, as an assistant to the prophet, never really applied it in his own life. Now let me make this observation, friends. This is because it's poignant. I am, have observed that it is possible for a person to hear a thousand evangelistic sermons and never be evangelized in their own heart. It is possible to hear sermons on holiness or faithfulness or giving or commitment without it ever making any difference in our lives. I've observed that it's possible to attend special services, workshops, seminars, Conferences on missions and God's global mandate to take the glorious good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And yet without ever feeling any personal responsibility in missions. I've observed that it's possible to sit in the middle of a church like Union Chapel. Which is the direct product of a mission minded value culture that literally informs, defines who we are as a church, our personality, our vision, our values, and our ultimate purpose of this church and never since God's mandate on our own life. I have observed it is possible to see the amazing activity of God through our many outreach ministries and we have ministries all over this city and all over this country, and around the world, literally, and never feel obligated to participate or to go or to pray or to give. The only thing a faith promise card becomes for such people that I've observed is an annoyance now that I have to discard this piece of paper. They keep handing me stuff, and I don't need any more stuff. Discard. Never make the personal application. It is possible to observe and even appreciate the substantial efforts that Union Chapel makes. Maybe you're aware of it. It makes you feel good. You're associated with a church that does great things. And and you know that we do things all over the place. And maybe you're proud of that. And maybe you even talk it up. And maybe, maybe you find it substantial places like Muncie, and Fort Collins, Colorado, and Cape Coral, Florida, and Marietta, Ohio, and Taraz, Kazakhstan, and other parts of the world, but yet never sense the impulse to personally contribute financially to the faith promise, or even to the general budget. It's an amazing thing. Ladies and gentlemen, I stagger at the thought of what our local church could be, and the greater world might be like, If all of us, within the sound of God's truth, truly took it seriously. I mean, made the connection and actually went, what if everybody went all in? What if we all went all in? What might happen? Robert Dale was a great preacher of the gospel. Listen to this story. He had difficulty with the doctrine of hell. A lot of preachers do have difficulty with the doctrine of hell these days. And Robert Dale was one of those. He said, and I quote, There's only one man I would listen to on the doctrine of hell, and that is D.L. Moody. And he said, The only reason I would listen to D.L. Moody is because I have never heard D.L. Moody speak on the subject without breaking down in the middle of it and weeping. One of the most notable philosopher-skeptics of history was the Scottish philosopher David Hume. If you went to college and studied philosophy, you've heard this name. Everyone has studied David Hume. He's a notable atheist, and anyone who has been to the school has heard about it. He hammered nails into the coffin of theism like no one before him. One day, David Hume was rushing through the streets of London, pulling his raincoat up around his face against the cold, and somebody recognized him and said to him, Sir Hume, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to listen to a man called George Whitfield preaching. Now, George Whitfield was a great preacher of the gospel in the 18th century, Western Europe, based out of London. He was a contemporary of our father, John Wesley. John Wesley and George Whitfield were buddies. And he was a great preacher of the gospel. And the astounded bypasser said to David Hume, You don't believe what Whitfield does, do you? To which David Hume said, Absolutely not, but Whitfield does, and I want to hear a man who does. We have numbers of people in our congregation who are very successful, they have arrived at a place in their lives where they have influence. In other people's lives, we have, we have people at the highest levels of our community, people in the political realm, in the, in, the, in, the, in the economic business world, people in the educational world, in the medical field, people who have parented well, people who know people and have influence over other people, have management responsibility, coaching, teaching responsibilities over people, and they have great influence over people. As, I, as I've stood here now, this the fourth service this weekend, I've looked into the faces of lots of people like that. You are accomplished people, and you have influence over others. Here's the question I want to ask you today. Do you have the answer resident in your own life, the answer to the most important question that the people that you have influence with are desperate Hear. Is the hope you ascribe in your Christian life real in your own heart? Are you in touch with the message? Is it so real that your life matches your message and you can meaningfully give it away to others? Friends, I know of no other hope for mankind. I know of no other hope for the people God has called you to influence. It matters. Not who we elect as president. It does not ultimately matter who is president. It does not ultimately matter what legislation is passed or isn't passed. I promise you, a hundred years from now, you won't care. But what does matter is being available with the resource that is most meaningful in the life of a person in need, which is an authentic, compelling Personal experience and relationship with Jesus Christ that you can share with another person in such a way that they can find meaningful and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Is Jesus real to you? Real enough that if someone asked you, you could give a compelling verbal witness out of the story of your life and relationship with him so that it could become meaningful for them? Are you in touch with your message? Jonah was out of touch with his mission. He was out of touch with his message. And here's the third thing. It's on your outline. He was in touch with something. He was in touch with his own comfort. You need the word comfort. Does this resonate with anyone besides me? Does this resonate with you? Can I get a witness? Are you in touch with with your own comfort? Anyone here besides me? If I get two separate speaking invitations this week for this coming February, February 2018, the end of February, if I get two speaking engagements, one is from South Dakota and the other one is from South Florida, how might God encourage me? I'm pretty sure I can, I can hear God saying South Florida is the right place to go and take your wife with you and spend a couple of extra days. It's February in Indiana. Yeah. We move naturally in the direction of our own comfort. That's the way we lean. And Americans highly value comfortable things like we value security. We, we value personal safety. We value financial security. The problem, of course, is that it's not necessarily a biblical worldview or, or value system or structure. The Bible doesn't really teach people that you ought to be safe and, and content and comfortable all the time. In fact, just the opposite is true. I was in a meeting in Florida this past week, and this was in association with Asbury Theological Seminary, and we broke up into small groups, and we were answering some strategic questions, and when we gave feedback out of our groups, one of the groups said, well, one of the things we ought to be more sensitive to as we're training the next Christian leaders for the world in our seminary is we ought to remind them that part of, one of the options on the list should be that you should be prepared to become a martyr for Jesus' sake. You ought to be in a position where you're willing to give your life for the sake of the gospel. And you could feel, when that report came out, you could feel people in the room go, wow, wow. But the truth is, the fact is, that there are more brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are suffering persecution and being martyred for Christ's sake than at any time in history. Just as sure as we're sitting here wondering what restaurant we should pick if the service gets done on time, There are other brothers and sisters in the world just as sure as we're here wondering if they should even congregate in a group of two or three people because if they get caught, someone will whack off their head. Context is everything. I mean, for most of us, the biggest challenge we have right now in association with our faith is what to put down on that faith promise card. Oh, God, I forgot that was today. I wouldn't have come. Now I'm stuck in a room. <laughs> Let me summarize with this poignant story. It comes to us from the historic pages of the World Missionary Movement. I mentioned that Jonah was out of touch with his mission and his message and in touch with his own comfort. Let me introduce you to a man who was the exact opposite. I take you into the heart and life of David Livingston. David Livingston was born in Blantyre, Scotland in 1813. He sat on his father's knee who told him stories of the famed Scottish missionary Carl Gustav. Livingston, at an early age, made a commitment to missions, and he said, Lord, send me where you want me to go. Make me that kind of missionary. When he was nine years old, he had already memorized the 119th Psalm, all 176 verses to recognize the primacy of Scripture and God's Word in his own heart. As a young man, Livingston traveled to Africa and stood outside a cluster of African villages where he saw the smoke spiraling upwards, in his diary he entered these words, and I quote, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages has burned itself within my heart. Then he got on his knees and wrote this prayer, and I quote, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any ties that bind me, save only the ties that bind me to your service and to your heart. He married Mary Moffat of the famed Moffat missionary family. The poor woman was to suffer want and deprivation for many years because of the torrid conditions under which they lived. They lost some of their children. She completely lost her health. Finally, she said, David, I need to go back to recoup my health and my strength or I won't live much longer He understood, he loved her dearly. They bid each other goodbye. She came back to her homeland in Scotland and as they would try to exchange letters, it would take months and months for these letters to find each other. She would set eyes on her husband again, not after one month, not after one year, but after five years. Five years went by before David Livingston set foot on home territory again. He wrapped his arms around his wife and she pushed him away for just a moment to look at him. He was not recognizable to her. His face had been burned and leathered in the hot African sun. She looked at one of his eyes, now blinded. He'd walked into the limb of a tree. She saw his atrophied shoulder, which had been torn apart by a lion. And she only broke down in tears when, as he walked away, he had this awkward, limping gait. Members of the royal family wanted to meet him because he had become quite well-known. Professors wanted to see him. Young people wanted to be in his presence because he was such a pioneer. Finally, he looked at his wife, Mary, and said, Sweetheart, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun still burns within my heart. And so she said, David, I think you should go, go back to Africa and minister there. In a little while, when I get a bit stronger, I will join you there. And he understood and accepted it. He went, and a long while after that, she joined him. The very day that she set foot, on soil in Africa she contracted malaria once again and a short span after that he was going to bury her. An eyewitness said as he lowered her body into the ground they saw him kneel and using her casket as an altar prayed this prayer. My Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again consecrate my life to Thee. I shall seek no value in anything i possess or in anything i do except in relation to thy kingdom and to thy service he went back to his hometown of ujiji while he was gone someone had taken his medicine he felt desperation because of that he prayed lord you promised to be with me you know i need that medicine please help me even as he prayed that day he heard someone enter the room and as he looked from his posture of prayer for the first time he gazed into the face of a white man, a stranger, and he asked the question, Who are you, sir? The response was, My name is Henry M. Stanley. And then those famous words, Mr. Livingston, I presume. He said, Mr. Livingston, let me tell you two things about me. Number one, I'm the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth. Please don't try to convert me. Newspapers in America have sent me to try and do an article on your life and work. And number two, Somebody in America has sent me this medicine. Do you need it? Four months later, the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth bent his knee on African soil and gave his life to Christ. The best biography of Livingston you'll read is written by Henry M. Stanley. It's two volumes, it's called Livingston of Africa. In Blantyre, Scotland, you can see Livingston's house. There the story is told, including the famous painting of Stanley bidding Livingston to come home. But Livingston stayed on. Shortly thereafter, his closest African friend, a man by the name of Chuma, he and a friend would carry Livingston by stretcher from village to village. He turned to his friend Chuma and said, I need to go home. Take me back. I'm too weary. I'm too sick. They carried him into his home and were about to spill him onto his cot. But Livingston asked that he be lowered to his knees so that he might pray Chuma reported later that his prayers were so intense so meaningful and so personal Chuma would stand outside of the door and occasionally look in to see if he was okay and after a long while he decided that Livingston needed to sleep more than he needed to pray and so Chuma went in put his hand on Dr. Livingston's shoulder and said doctor, sir and realized that he was dead he died exactly the way he had tried to live In touch with his mission, in touch with his message, out of touch with his own comfort. Remarkable part of this story is that Chuma carried Livingston's body 1,800 miles by foot for nine months in order to ship his body back to England. But not before Chuma had removed Livingston's heart. And buried it under a tree in Africa. Because he said that's where his heart really is. I don't know where you are today. Uh, I know where I am. I am a long, 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 long way from Livingston's quality. Long way from that. But isn't it true that all of us, all of us today can take a step toward that kind of quality? All of us can take it you can, I can, we call. We can all take a step. And one of the ways we can take a simple little step is through an expression to something like faith promise. Would we dare to pray a prayer as meaningfully as we've ever prayed? I believe the problems out there in the world are not moral, they're not social, they're not cultural. They are actually at their roots, spiritual. And the only hope for any of us and all of us is a meaningful relationship with God through Jesus Christ and that we hold in our hands this message and have been called as ambassadors to go and to offer it here and there. Would you dare pause and pray with me and ask God what he might do through you? Let's pause and pray. Friends, these... uh, These words to this prayer comes from a hymn written by Charles Wesley. And he wrote, and we pray, O thou who came from above, the pure celestial fire to impart, build a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. There let it for thy glory burn with inextinguishable blaze And trembling to its source return in humble prayer and fervent praise. Jesus, confirm my heart's desire to work and speak and think for thee. Still let me guard the holy fire and still stir up the gift in me. Ready for all thy perfect will, my acts of faith and love repeat. Till death thy endless mercies seal and make my sacrifice complete. Lord, we conclude with the prayer of Dr. Livingston. Send us anywhere, only go with us. Make a difference in us and through us to the world as we are in touch with your mission and your message and out of touch with our own comfort. We pray in Jesus' name. And the people said,